Hey, DER Task Force members, it's Russell Wilcox here, your editor and producer of the podcast. We're finally back after a long hiatus to tackle one of the more controversial topics in the energy space, nuclear. Big nuclear, small nuclear, or SMRs, whatever you want to call it, and everything in between. This topic is especially near and dear to my energy heart because I started my career in 2010 working as a manufacturing engineer for Westinghouse Nuclear, right at the time when there was a glimmer of hope for a nuclear renaissance. That was until the Fukushima nuclear meltdown occurred shortly thereafter, and the industry came back to a screeching halt. It is now 10 years later, and there are new innovations and new business models for nuclear that is bringing back a new sense of optimism for the industry. We have many barriers to bring back this incredibly reliable, flexible, and resilient energy source. We can get over some major political, regulatory, and cost hurdles. Whether you are pro or anti-nuclear or somewhere in the middle, this episode will enlighten you from a way that we do things best at the task force, keeping things in perspective of the energy markets we live in. Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Is this like Einstein when he... (laughs) I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know what that was, but it was awesome. I love it. Okay, it's it's Nietzsche. That's the famous (laughs) God is dead quote. The passage. Oh, oh shit. We probably okay, should have okay. gotten that. So I'm I'm gonna come out and start the episode by saying nuclear is dead. And we have we have killed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. But don't worry, I think you know, as Nietzsche continues to go on, like it's about, you know, must we become our own gods? Like he goes into this whole thing about what you know what comes next. And um, you know, I certainly have faith in and believe in and sort of a an actual reemergence of nuclear but i think it has to look completely different than it has in the past or or you know we in a lot of the narrative today is like us hearkening back to this other age in the 50s and stuff and um i just find it kind of counterproductive so i as i've said in the past like i almost studied nuclear engineering. I did physics and math as an undergrad and had my application into a master's PhD program as a nuclear engineer. But I switched because I was like, there's no job prospects in this industry. So I switched to mechanical engineering and I wound up in like solar and batteries and almost did a PhD in battery storage science. And then, you know, here we are with David Energy or whatever. But the point is, is that like, I do think that that old era is dead and it's gone and it's never coming back and we should let it die and we should we should move on and we should we should figure out something new (laughs) so So today's episode james is going to convince you why you should get a phd in nuclear engineering yes don't make the same mistake that i made which was not doing that because we need you for the audience's sake um we tried to record this episode once before and sort of came to this point james is making and eventually decided we had to scrap the episode because we didn't really enunciate it strongly enough. So we're, we're coming back for uh, attempt number two here, I think uh, with a bit more focused of a perspective and yeah, we didn't say it, but obviously this episode's on nuclear. So before we jump into things, I just wanted to give one additional quote. I always love this. I think it's so funny. It's uh, from Albert Einstein 
And uh, it's just nuclear power is one hell of a way to boil water. And I just think that's hilarious. Yes, um, that's the that's it, the lighter side of the conversation. So thank you. Because it kind of sums up how I feel about like mega projects and everything. It's just yeah. like, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so why don't why don't we why don't we jump into that first? Like we, you know, we simultaneously think nuclear is really important, but we're also pretty skeptical of its sort of current incarnation. Um, what's wrong with it? I'm happy to start, but maybe yeah, I was gonna say, to? why don't I? You know, I I took a. Hopefully, people understand that was a little facetious. Um, but I'm a nerd, so maybe it wasn't that funny. Um, so <laughs> I'd love to like. Can you? Do you guys agree with my sort of uh, position there, or what I'm trying to say, or like, can you rephrase it for others who may have misheard what I'm actually trying to say? Like, what you know, totally. what what do you guys think? Yeah, yeah Colleen, so, give us your give us your take. So my take, right, is that basically, like sixties and seventies, we built a lot of nuclear, and then a whole bunch of things happened that I don't think we're going to focus on today. Around like that caused sort of increased project cost, and nuclear basically stopped getting built in an efficient way. Right? I mean, I think the Vocal plant, we've spent billions of dollars and still haven't seen nuclear. And so I think what James is saying is the traditional way of doing nuclear, which is these sort of epic, huge projects that aren't modular, everything's super individualized, requires a ton of sort of both project management skills and nuclear engineering skills, isn't viable for the future when you're competing with really cheap solar, wind, storage, even natural gas. And so if we want clean, firm power, which we'll get into later, uh, you need a sustainable form of nuclear, which we don't actually have yet today. Fe- well, feasible. Like we, you know, we have nuclear, but it, we're saying it's not feasible. I guess we don't have the mod- only- like a modular way of building projects oh, that are like cost effective. Right. Right. Um, we have the technological capability, but not the manufacturing capability is maybe the way of thinking about it for nuclear. Yeah, I basically have the same exact view as Colleen, um, but I'll do it in a sentence. Great technology, <laughs> shitty product. That's exactly how I feel about <laughs> nuclear right now. It's just like, it's good. awesome, but like good. no one ever bothered to make a business out of it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, do we want to want to jump into what seems like one of our rare, pretty unified episodes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll, you know, I'll make sure we, we disagree on some stuff throughout, you know, but, (laughs) but I I think, you know, before like, um, Colleen, you said, we're probably not going to get into like reasons for cost overruns and stuff, but I think touching on it at the top is important because we will. (laughs) Yeah. But but we will. Yeah. So, um, because basically what I, I think, what's important is to draw out like what we view the problem around nuclear as a technology, as a product, as a, you know, political or social movement, whatever, like all these different facets to it, there's real problems. And then in, in, you know, our ability, the the feasibility of wide scale nuclear program for a lot of different reasons in the U S we're going to keep this focused on the U S um, And then there's like the narrative around that, which I feel is very disconnected from the reality sometimes. Um, 
which ultimately I find kind of like cynical and counterproductive in a weird way, because it's, it's this like cathartic, really easy way of casting blame on certain things that almost like alleviate actual responsibility in doing something about it. Like that's what pisses me off about it. I think, um, instead of just looking in the mirror and being like, we got to do a lot better. And I think, I think Alex Trimbath, Trimbath, Trimblath has a great, he has the best thread on this. I honestly would love to just like read it on the podcast, but you should just, you know, maybe we'll link to it in the show notes where he really turns it around on the nuclear industry. Like this is, we need to be better. Like here's all the really concrete reasons why this isn't working and what we need to do about it. Um, so there's a regulatory angle, there's a social angle, like, you know, a brand, a branding angle of nuclear, I guess, like people are afraid of it. I don't think that's really true in millennials and Gen Z. Um, and then there's like a technology and engineering angle. There's an economic angle. So I, I do think we should just spend a little bit of time on that now. Um, so I'm curious, like, what do you, what do you guys think are the, 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 the major reason or the top three, whatever you want, however you want to take it reasons why we aren't seeing more nuclear built today. I'll, I'll start. Um, I mean, if you kind of look at the history of the nuclear build out, right, we discover the technology. Um, it takes a little while to sort of get it working, right? But then we start building plants and we enter this expected sort of like age of um, sort of nuclear excellence, right? Like everything's going to be amazing. The phrase too cheap to meter comes from this time. Um, this is also when all utilities are vertically integrated, right? So we build a bunch of plants, they're working. Um, we do have some, some sort of environmental pushback to this. Um, and we actually do have a, a few small accidents, but generally things are, are going pretty well. Uh, but what you find is these plants, once we start this sort of slow process of opening up energy markets, these plants have a lot of trouble. Right. So first you have PERPA, which aren't really energy markets, but kind of quasi energy markets. It makes energy supply competitive. Uh, then you have true, you know, quote, deregulation or liberalization. And what you find is it just doesn't make sense to build these things anymore. Um, right. Because it's, it's just very, very hard as a private investor to stomach incredibly high capex that's recovered, you know, over a, an asset lifetime of, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, and what makes this way more challenging is at the same time, we start experiencing this trend in the US of mega projects um, getting more and more expensive, right? So you have market conditions supporting these projects less and less, and the projects themselves getting more and more expensive. Um, suddenly, we're in a position where we haven't commissioned a nuclear power plant in decades. Um, we have a few that have <laughs> we've been working on uh, to no avail. And so I basically think the the issue here is they're they're mega projects, right? It's it's not a product, it's it's a project. That's um, something, funnily enough, at at scale we focused a lot on for microgrids, right? Because they experience all the same problems, even though they're very tiny in comparison. Um, but yeah, I think you know you try to build something one off um, where it's not sort of coming out of a factory environment where. You're not developing supply chains around it where, um, you know, each time a contractor works on it is their first time and probably their last time 
like the industry is just never going to learn. You're not going to get learning rights. Right. Um, and I think this is pretty, pretty exemplified. And if you look at areas that today are seeing some success with nuclear, uh, China, uh, South Korea, and there's even some plants being built in Saudi Arabia, Pakistan um, and France. Or- yeah. And yeah. And, and France during, uh, what is it? The seventies, their nuclear build out, which, you know, really, really, uh, successfully decarbonized their power sector. Uh, what they all had in common was, you know, central planning, um, and frequently nationalization or something close to it. Right. And that makes sense because with these massive plants, you know, if you're going to build 20 of them and you use the same exact design, the same contractors, the same foundry casts, the metal parts, uh, you know, through all the way through the value chain, then you actually can start to get pretty good at it. But you can't accomplish that in a market sort of democratized uh, manner, right? It has to be like from on high and that's it. Um, so I think kind of in both directions, we've seen that story play out. And, you know, here we are, um, you know, long after the very first successful test reactor. And we have a nuclear industry in the US that basically does not exist. It is like the shell of once what was in the form of just existing assets and the people operating them, but otherwise there's nothing. (laughs) And so here we are, (laughs) right? I mean, I think that's spot on. And just a brief note on, I think something that's important to highlight is, I think even in those super top-down areas where basically basically what you're saying is the reason has to be top-down with existing nuclear, again, we're going to stress that, we're going to come around to new tech. Um, the levelized cost of producing energy in liberalized markets, it's just way higher for nuclear than for other forms of energy. So the only way that it actually gets built is if you have a command and control economy. Because I think even in, in the areas we've gotten very good at it, in like South Korea or France, I've seen the lowest I've seen is like 80 bucks a megawatt hour. We're building like solar, wind, gas, and coal, like still like six and under, like three, two cents. Um, or, or sorry, that would be like 20 bucks a megawatt hour. Um, so we have liberalized the we have liberalized markets in the US. So it's just it's just not gonna happen from that perspective. But we can also talk about why, you know, why the prices are high in the US, higher than they should be, because they're way above 80 from like, there is a regulatory issue. But anyway, I just wanted to say that even in those very successful programs, it's still like, that's more expensive power than what we're going to have here in the US for the most part. Right. And I think there were like, I think what Duncan was saying is sort of the core of the issue. And then I think you also had after like Three Mile Island in 1979, you had all these new regulations hit that didn't necessarily themselves lead to super big cost increases, but you kind of had inflation happening at the same time, which was drag. And so as projects were getting dragged out, the price of things was changing really rapidly. And so projects were getting super expensive. And then I think that led to a lot of delays and issues. And then I think eventually, right, what we're seeing today is in, in an issue of inflation. And at this point, regulation is maybe kind of understood to some extent could be priced in. But now 
so many people like James have opted not to go into nuclear, we actually have, I think, labor issues. And so I think projects also take a long time because finding the right people is difficult. The right people can charge kind of whatever they want because there's not a lot of them. And so you sort of have this like cycle of not having the right tools to really get these projects. Yeah, or supply chains, like Mm -hmm. the whole lot of it. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'd like, so I agree with all of that. And I think I'd take it a step further. I think you look at recent nuclear project outcomes in the US and they can really only be explained by either like incompetence or corruption, right? It's it's wild how bad we are at this now. Um, and it's it's one thing for the, the, like, I think this is an important distinction. It's one thing just for the technology to be expensive, right? If we know it costs 80 bucks a megawatt hour, 100 bucks a megawatt hour, 120 bucks a megawatt hour, we can evaluate if that's worth it, right? Maybe in the context of climate change with the need for firm power, which we're going to get into later, maybe, who knows, maybe that's a good idea and like the government can subsidize it. The problem is we have no idea what it costs, right? Every time we build a project in the US, like it's just increase after increase. I don't have the numbers in front of me. The first time we tried to record this, I did, but like the Vogel cost increases are just bananas. It, It, we've like tripled the budget at this point and the thing's still not even done. It hasn't produced a kilowatt hour of power, yet everyone's being charged for it on their bills. It's via advanced cost recovery. Like we have contractors that have gone bankrupt, companies that have like disappeared. It is nuts, right? So I think there's something to tackle there too, which is the existing interests that dominate the US nuclear industry just by virtue of being sort of like the last cockroaches there. They they're they're bad (laughs) whether it's at their jobs or ethically i can't say but like it's it's also you know to to the point you made about liberalization of power markets is like all these plants got canceled in the 80s but that was after purpa in 1978 which which introduced competition and building new generation in certain i mean in all markets but in regulated markets like the only nuclear we're seeing being built right now is in regulated markets like it's in the vertically integrated monopoly utilities like there's always this there, i don't think anyone's has anyone even attempted one in like a dereg market oh no. i mean absolutely like, not no. like it's just <laughs> if you're a private equity person and you ask like ask a private equity power a power private equity person about building a nuclear plant in a dereg market they'll just laugh you out of the room like what are you even saying to me i mean <laughs> so right like I mean, and I'd even say that the nuclear plants that have been um, attempted to be constructed in, in vertically integrated utility areas, it's not even like all of them. It is those which most notoriously have their regulators captured, right? It's the mm-hmm. Southeast, right? Yep. It's no, it's not Colorado. It's not, you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's a very particular place people are trying to do this. Not that I think they will again for a long time because the public's pretty upset about it. It's like, a local election issue now, which is pretty wild. Um, but yeah, it's, it's intense. Right. And that's like one of the biggest issues that I personally now have with nuclear is because I really think nuclear is a really good option for us. And I feel like it's gotten this bad rap because it's just these huge expensive projects that like even non-energy people are like, like nuclear is expensive and I'm paying for it. <laughs> the, the last example of, I think about like when, when we started with the thesis of like the nuclear industry 
particularly in the West, needs to like be reborn and reimagined. Like today's nuclear industry, for example, um, is a part of like the big first energy scandal in Ohio, right? Right. Like who, ju- who just agreed to pay like $230 million <laughs> for federal charges that were brought against yeah, them and like um, the coal cronies, right? Yeah. Right. Like and and that's together. the thing they're aligned because nuclear interests today are simply utility asset owners who tend to also own coal. Right. And it's like a real challenge. Um, and I, you know, it's funny. Like, I think we always talk, James, you and I always talk about this, like nuclear mind virus, right? Like when, uh, what was it? HB six, I think, which was the bill in Ohio that basically like gutted solar, wind, and efficiency programs, mm-hmm. and then prop that would prop up coal and nuclear plants that were economically challenged. Um, you know, when that passed, like <laughs> nuclear advocism, uh, uh, advocism world was like cheering. They were like psyched, right? Right, and. It, and I get it, right? If you're if you're kind of the thing you care about gets a win, it's exciting. But like, that's a problem, right? Because it made everybody look bad. It right. really wasn't good, right? Like, right? Like, FBI got involved in this, <laughs> right. right? So like, <laughs> right? We, like, like we really do need to separate ourselves from yeah. this old world because like right. it ain't good. And that's that's actually exactly what I was going to go into next. It's like I do want to concede the point that nuclear absolutely has a branding problem. Like, I think. A lot of the frustration I have now, we're kind of talking about like the narrative around nuclear, I think, which is really important to dig into, which is a lot of people who, um, you know, are smart, like highly educated. They look at like all the solutions out there and like, why don't we just build more nuclear? Like that seems like the obvious thing to do. And they're usually not as savvy on, on power markets or whatever. I understand the impulse. And their conclusion is basically like, the only thing I can think of is that we're afraid of nuclear because of misplaced fears on like Chernobyl. And, you know, there's been these big boondoggles, which is like bad regulations or bad political will. Like we, we don't have the will to do it. Um, and if we could just kind of get everyone to be like, yay, rah, rah, nuclear enough, it'll happen, which that's just not it's like, I think that's a really counterproductive stance because it completely ignores all the actual problems that we just addressed. And so I I guess, you know, my frustration is in the very pro-nuclear camp of which I actually, you know, I am pro-nuclear and like, I I think the spirit of the new nuclear movement in, in folks like, like Isodope, like Isabel are are amazing. Like, I, I love that just this super optimistic, like, let's, let's do more of this. I, I buy. Um, what I'm highlighting is like a different type of sort of pro-nuclear proponent, which sort of ignore a lot of the issues. And I, and I think the, the sort of core um, sort of implicit, implicit assumption in that perspective is that, that we believe that our institutions are ready to handle this when they're not. Like in the 50s, we had... Mm-hmm coming out of world war ii we were like we had all these vertically integrated monopolies we're like we're just going to build this stuff like you see in france or pakistan or south korea like whatever these top-down controls and i think if we're trying to harken back to these big mega projects that took like take like tons of political will like tons of capital lots of alignment um our expectation that that's going to happen i think is just like really night 
naive. I mean, like, it's just not going to happen. Like, look at the U.S. today. We can't even pass a freaking, like, we have to, like, argue about the debt ceiling every nine months. You know what I mean? Like, we can't do shit. Like, so how are we going to, how are we going to, like, come up with tens of billions of dollars to build nuclear? Like, where is that going to come from? It's, like, just ignoring our political reality today. Yeah. I also feel like we just have, I feel like nuclear and renewables kind of got pitted against each other because of all these like environmental regulations and like the environmentalists of the seventies were sort of quite anti-nuclear. Which and is I think, true. Which is true. Um, and then I think nuclear, like the nuclear bro community, like saw that and sort of had this like reactionary, like, well, if you hate me, then I hate you. And so there's always been this like really built up tension that I, I don't think exists in like the newer generation of people interested in energy right. where like right. we have like, we kind of understand that like, yes, there are safety implications, but that's like true of everything. And also, you know, like everything has safety implications, right? right? Like, not doing anything about climate. Not doing anything about climate change is a really <laughs> big safety implication. <laughs> um, Which I think so, everyone's on board with, you know? Uh, yeah. And so I think like, it feels like the people in like the core energy community have started to be like, okay, we need to think about all the solutions, but you still have people on, on like the nuclear side who are super like just very like nuclear bust there's no room for multiple options and then i think that makes some people in the energy community then very like unwilling to think about including nuclear as a solution it is like screw solar i mean like i do want to concede nuclear is extremely overregulated in a lot of ways there's a good reason to regulate it because it is like there are these tail risk there's this tail risk associated that like we need to be good about it but it does absolutely drive up costs it's like kind of the nail in the coffin of the nuclear industry in the US i think but it's not the sole cause i mean and there there's the um like to Schellenberger's credit he does if you listen to him like detail pretty well how the left sort of environmental movement cast nuclear out with like a lot of coal or fossil fuel interests behind them. Um, but it's not enough, I don't think. And like the the spirit that emerges out of that perspective, I think is, is an issue that we need to kind of dig into a little bit. Yeah, I, I would really agree here. I think, you know, I don't know, five minutes ago, I, I, I spent a lot of time um, sort of <laughs> attacking the current state of nuclear. But like, the reality is that, um, I think like when you look at these kind of conflicts, it's always worth at looking who at like who punched first. Um, and right. it, and it was not nuclear, right? Like they, they have for a long time kind of, I think received way more than their fair share of, uh, I don't know the exact word. Unwarranted attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah and, I, and even, I, I agree. Even today. And you see a lot of the, a lot more of this in like Europe, but you see like, you know, Greenpeace showing up to a nuclear power plant and like making a scene and like demanding it be shut down or like doing crazy things like flying a drone into it. And like, that's nuts. Right. And like, I can definitely see if I was passionate about a certain technology um, when someone comes at you like that, just kind of being like, I'm done. Like I'm through with right. all of you. So right. I I'm, I'm empathetic to, to like where totally. this comes from. Cause right. like, totally. they definitely have gotten the short end of the stick here. I think <sighs> Especially when you think of like, okay, nuclear plants get shut down in Germany and like coal plants get turned on and like 
in Germany, coal has probably contributed to a lot more deaths and safety issues than nuclear. Yeah. I would say, you know, without knowing the stats, I would say pretty confidently that's true. I'd take that bet. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, but people just think about it differently because it's less visible. Yeah. But it's not even, I mean, all those points are true. Like it's just, I think what I'm trying to point out is that I think ultimately what I'm saying, like when I, when I mentioned it as like a cynical position earlier, is that like, it's just kind of like pointing out all this stuff that's true, right? Like the, the bad, the, the unfair shake that nuclear has gotten like, correct. Like energy wind messed up. They should not have shut down nuclear. We, New York just shut down nuclear and it just got filled by gas, you know, like, uh, yes, that's true. But like, the reaction to that is kind of just like this, like pouty, like, like it's like, cause like of the greens, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, no, like, let's just like shake it off. Let's look to the future, pick ourselves up, like do something different because as we described earlier, like the reality is we're not going back to building new Indian points or whatever it is, right? Like it's not going to happen. So, so like, I guess the question would be like, what, you know, what do we, what do we do next? Like, what's the, how do we get out of this? How, how do we get out of this? And I think also like, maybe should we get, get out of this? Right. So like we, we've detailed what's wrong with the current state of nuclear. I think we've, you know, uh, told everyone that we feel it's important, <laughs> but like, why do we think nuclear is important to have? Right. Implicit is for certainly like, can nuclear and renewables coexist? on a grid together because that's also what makes mm -hmm. this so adversarial is like people don't you know nuclear people think no and renewables people think no yeah this is why it's it's funny i think like in kind of like climate intellectual world you always lately you know you hear people talk about how much they hate the nuclear versus renewables debate like that it got so sort of tired and annoying it's still my favorite thing right because it it draws out like the big important questions about where the power system is going. And like the reason the, the debate's heated and like has never died is because like, we don't know. Right. <laughs> so I personally yeah. like love this debate because I think it's, it's like vitally important. Um, and what it, in my opinion, revolves around is whether variable renewables, solar and wind can provide nearly 100% of our power or not. Yeah. Right. And some people very strongly say yes. Some people very strongly say no. And like, that's what this is about. Um, Cause if, if that wasn't a question, like clearly we just, you know, renewables are incredibly cheap. Like this would be an easy problem. You know, we'd be like, yeah, game over nuclear isn't a, isn't a great product and everything else is cheap, but there's a reason we're still interested in it. Right. Um, so I think it's worth, it's worth like really digging into that. Like, can we fully power ourselves with renewables? And I think the flip side of the argument, right? So like the renewable side is, okay, like, yeah, 100% renewable, it's cheap. Like we don't need nuclear. The nuclear side says, if you build out with nuclear, like why do you have all these variable renewables? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> why bother like, What's with the that? point of building them? Like we'll get, you know, build out these big power plants and like just run it traditional nuclear right doesn't ramp well like just build it and go you know i i agree with you duncan like that i love it it is like a very existential question that that needs to be asked 
and Colleen too about kind of like the the counterpoint you you pointed out. On the one hand, it's it is heated because it is an essential question, and I think it's probably overlooked as such, like firm power versus VRE, and like how how messy of a topic that actually is. But on the other hand, like there's like an inherent fallacy in both of those positions, which Duncan, I think you had previously called like the same trick of the mind, which is the nuclear crew in being like big, firm, base load, firm, clean power is like this, you know, we already kind of mentioned like big political will, like lots of public dollars, like let's just get behind this. Let's just choose this as the solution, which, you know, we detailed that's not going to happen. The same is true as on the renewable side. Like in all those models is like lots of high voltage DC, which I think is cool. Obviously like HVDC is cool. Just like big nuclear is cool. But like, do, are we really going to build like, like we can't even get a three and a half trillion dollar again, like infrastructure bill passed. Like how much, how much like super highways are we going to build from the panhandle to California or Florida in the next decade? Like, right. And really? unless you get FERC to like really change things, like that's it's state by state. And like not we- a chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. No, I think this is super fair. And it's funny if you if you took my little rant about how nuclear projects have been a disaster for like the last 20 years and you just removed the word nuclear and you said transmission instead, <laughs> most of it would hold up. Right. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a problem. It's a real problem. And I agree. It's like it's the same kind of trick, right? It's like, oh yeah, we just got to go do it. <laughs> but like, we know that's really hard. And I don't, I don't want to say unlikely because I don't know. I, I don't think it's good to like preordain things to failure, but like, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, 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 you know, when, when putting together your portfolio of solutions of which, you know, X percent will actually end up being the main contributors. Like, it's a good thing to include, but it needs to be a portfolio, right? We can't totally. just say, oh, no, we don't need firm power because we're just going to build out millions of miles of transmission lines. Like, you can't say that, right? Because yeah. it it has its issues too. In the same way that we could build transmission, we could build new nuclear. Right. That's That's to me like, I'm like, you can't really say which one is more likely at this point. Right. I I guess what I'm saying is that you're right, Duncan, like shouldn't poo poo. I think there's a lot of great like policy work on like say transmission projects, all this stuff. Like it's not that we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but the way to phrase it would just be that they're equally as unlikely outcomes and they are pitted against each other. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's how I'd rephrase my, my position. Well, and I, so I think like the optimal portfolio, like would have both, right. They're like a natural hedge to each other. Yeah. Um, and like the one thing we know for sure is we're going to build a lot more wind, solar and batteries. And then we have this kind of like long duration seasonality firmness question. That's like, we're not really quite sure of, so we should probably like go after like four or five of these things, including like advanced geothermal, you know, hydrogen electrolyzers, um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff, right? Um, but do we want to like jump into kind of like how the power system, I don't want to say how it works, but like some of this stuff around like, like, do we want to talk about if 80% variable renewables is possible or not? Because I think it's interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. <laughs> wow. I, I'm, mean, I'm just being, I'm just stepping on everyone's toes today for, for fun. But um, <laughs> Colleen, what you, I'll, I'll expand on that in a sec. But Colleen, what's your. I mean, my my take is that it's theoretically possible, but it isn't i don't think it's possible if you're not willing to accept like the occasional texas <laughs> right like you have yeah. you have to be willing to say like there will be times where like everything fails and that's probably gonna be true i mean that's gonna be true really regardless within a grid but i think like you're gonna have a little bit more if everything is variable yeah because it's just so the many tail, the tails get fatter like exactly you, yeah like you just get like a bad wind week, two weeks while it's cloudy and yeah. you're just like, you're done. Like, I don't care how much storage. Right. And it's like, like winter and the Eastern seaboard yeah. and the West. And everyone's got heat pumps like now. no wind and like everyone has heat pumps. So like, yeah. And I don't think people are willing to accept that. And so therefore I think there'll have to be some sort of firm power. Now that firm power could be like that we overbuild solar and make, you know, green hydrogen to store for the winter, right? Like, I don't know what that looks like. Like there's different options, but I think there'll be something that will have to come in. And so it might end up being like what 60, 40, 50, 50, like something. I mean, I think it could probably be like 80, 20. Um, it's just like there's renewables. A, you just need just like, like something for those tails. I think it's a like, stretch to get to 40. To get to 40. Yeah. On an energy basis. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I mean, what are we at now? Like in say Australia or Texas, like 10 or 15. Um, yeah. I don't like, know off what, the top of my head, head, but I mean, we have, we like do have yearly, places. like yearly energy mix. There are definitely places that have that. Yeah. Like, um, but I think mostly places with hydro. Well, yeah, that's different. Yeah, right? that's not very which is different because it's not very use that but, when you got it. But I mean, you have you know in the Midwest, you have like an incredible amount of wind. Um, I don't know if it's forty percent, but it's like getting there. All right. Well, maybe. Uh, yeah, in certain areas, we'll get to forty, but let's let's call it sixty to be safe. Like my yeah, my gut is like maybe even like seventy, but like. That's in energy terms and in capacity, we're going to need like an incredible right. amount of capacity right. of other stuff. Exactly. Like, exactly. And so I think it's worth like getting into this a little bit because I, I think it's a good, it would be, it would be valuable to sort of stand uh, or, or not, or anti-stand uh, both sides of the argument here. Right. Cause like on one hand you have a lot of nuclear folks or just anti-renewables folks who don't care about climate and they're just like, we just got to keep ripping coal um, who make the case that because solar and wind is variable, its capacity is worthless, right? Like if you have a one megawatt, you know, microgrid, you can have, and you can have solar on it, but you need a one megawatt gas generator, right? Cause you never know when that solar is going to go away. Um, you know, forgetting storage and other dynamics. There's people who make that argument, right? And when you like blow that yeah. up to the power system scale, what they're saying is like, we're going to have all these gigawatts of solar and wind, but like all they really can do for us is help us avoid fuel costs and maintenance costs. They can help us run the coal less, 
but we need an equivalent amount of coal yeah. to meet peak load or gas. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, it's gas. Yeah. Yeah. Like correct, everyone's like, what's correct. filling the gap? It's, it's already gas. gas. Like, gas. <laughs> it's, it's gas in Australia. It's gas in Texas. Yeah. Everywhere. Gas everywhere. So like, that's, I think worth interrogating, right? Like I don't think there is a capacity value of zero to wind and solar across an entire country, various geographies, like different resource types. Like I don't think you can say it's worth zero capacity. And I don't mean worth in dollar terms, like capacity market stuff. I mean, like if you run power system optimizations, they don't make us meet peak load with gas, right? Like there's some capacity you get out of yeah. this stuff. It's just not enough. <laughs> so like on one hand, I find the kind of like firm power stand position a little outrageous and it like takes a very like, you know, elementary view of like power system design. Um, that's just like stuck in, in the old world. Like they don't do time series analysis. They're just kind of like doing this, like add up the capacity thing. Um, on the other hand though, yeah, you have the opposite side, which I think tends to make assumptions that are very pro variability that lead to that capacity value being very high, higher than I personally think it is. Um, so that's how I land in the middle, which is like, no, I don't think these things are like worthless from a firmness perspective. Um, it's just complicated, <laughs> but at the same time, like, yeah, we, I, I don't see any way where we don't have lots of dispatchable capacity, you know, beyond, you know, four hour batteries. I just don't see how we can do that to fully decarbonize, especially recognizing like each incremental percent of decarbonizing the power system with variable renewables gets harder and harder, like exponentially yeah. harder, right? Solving, you know, 40 to 50 is way easier than like 70 to 80. Um, so anyway, that's kind of like, I think that debate is incredibly important. Just by the way, Josh Rhodes, I found on Google images. So Josh is the man. So I, I trust this. Um, 2020 Texas energy generation by fuel type. So I think this is like the energy component. Um, 18% coal, 23% wind, 2% solar, 11% nuclear, 46% natural gas. So yep. like 65 fossil fuel and 25 what work. When I say 40, I mean 40% VRE, like 40% yeah. wind and solar. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing is like, yeah, there's it, other renewables. Yeah. Yeah. And it does start pushing out stuff out of the stack. So, I mean, Texas is already getting weird. And I think the next 15% is going to be like, it's going to start getting pretty weird. And a lot of tail events at 40% is more what I mean. Like the idea of just like a completely re reliable grid at 40%, I think is you need a lot of storage that that's not being built yet, or it's just going to continue to be gas filling in. When you, when, yeah, when you say tail events, do you mean like pricing events? Cause that I mean has both. to be a part of a high VRE system. You, there's no way, there's no way the firm stuff could ever be properly right. without it. Or do you mean like reliability? Like, like there's no power. Both. both. I mean, I guess they sort of come together, right? <laughs> well, I mean the, the former, 
I mean, really should be relatively common, right? Like there's no way a battery can ever make sense or, or a, you know, peaking hydrogen plant or, or a nuclear plant if there's not a lot of scarcity events. Because the other half of the time, the power price is going to be zero. Yeah. The daily, the daily volatility is like, you know, I'm not saying that's a problem. I mean, we're trying to build a business around that future. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, part of that is, um, again, on both of the like, the capacity is zero, capacity is worth something. Um, it does make sense to inject like the demand side of this into the conversation because i think it's what both sides of the debate neglect which is like you need price responsive demand i think we need it in on grids in general um because it essentially just means we're overpaying for overbuying capacity by not having price responsive load like it's not a market it's just like there's it's a structural short squeeze because like the demand side is going to buy power no matter what because they're usually hedged with an energy provider. And so when you see supply shortages, like you just blow out. Like that's why that happens because no one's going to stop using the commodity as the price increases. Um, and that's, that's, I can't think of another commodity like that. You know, I, I feel like that's a part of the conversation that's like missing a lot is like you need the capacity on the, the demand, demand side. side. Yeah. And there's a lot of like viable capacity there. We just haven't unlocked it. Yeah. Lots of latent capacity. I mean, this is something though I find funny in the nuclear world. You bring up this and and to most people, what you're referring to, they'll call demand response, even though I know in your your conception it's it's bigger and more interesting than that. But most people think about that as demand response. And you bring up demand response to most nuclear supporters and they're like, oh, you mean energy rationing? Like, <laughs> we don't want that. Right. <laughs> like so it, it's just one funny thing, but no, I'm totally with you, um, with you on that. Like there's, there's other solutions as well beyond, um, you know, building big firm stuff. We're exposed to prices at the pump. You know, it's not energy rationing. It's just the commodity is expensive. Like yeah, you can pass that to consumers in one form or another. It's just this yeah. weird conception of like a really centralized grid that we have. Yep. And in both conversations, it's like that paradigm is going to continue and it might not. Yep. Totally. Do you guys mind if I just kind of ask a random yeah. question here? Do it. So I was recently sort of talking to some folks about this very issue. Like, you know, let, let's just assume we do need like a good amount of firm power um, and it needs to exist in energy markets um, or electricity markets rather. And you know, maybe that's an energy only market. Maybe there's a capacity market. Like how do we, how do we make this work? Right. Is the, are the scarcity of events just, just such high pricing that, you know, the peaker plant model that you, you live on that, you know, those big couple days each year, um, or, um, and maybe like smaller than that, but still meaningful is like happening every day. And so you're kind of making all your money from four to 9 PM or something. Um, you know, or like, do we have to have capacity markets to make this work? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, one person responded to me and their view was just that like short of large innovations in nuclear, which I think is where we're going next um, in this conversation, short of that to build today's nuclear, 
like you need like mega capacity markets. Like you can't have like the PJM like three year auction. You need like a 10 year auction to build something that takes like five years to build, right? <laughs> like, like you need re- really long term planning. Um, and do you think that's true in general of like these firm resources that, like, do we think they're going to be able to survive on scarcity pricing? Like if renewables, let's say they get to 60% and the rest has to be something else that, you know, 12, 14, 15, 16 hours a day, like doesn't really make much money um, on average, right? Because different seasons and stuff, it'll be different. Like, can is this stuff really going to get built if it has to rely on kind of like hoping like <laughs> the money hours strike? Just like markets as they are now. Yeah, like it's it's hard to build expensive infrastructure on like a prayer. <laughs> yeah, know? I I don't know how you have nuclear in an energy only market with like seventy percent renewables. Like in the sense of like, right? If it existed, like sure, it would make money. But like to decide to build nuclear in a grid that like maybe has sufficient capacity to like run all summer when the solar's there. I don't know. And like the risk is high, right? Like let's say your model does show you that like you have enough hours that are like are above your strike price driven by scarcity that like even though 10 hours a day you're out of the money, like the others make up for it. But now your profitability is based on, you know, 3,000 hours a year, right? Not 8,760. So if anything happens in those, like you're really screwed, right? If batteries get a little bit better and start to eat into that, there's a 500 hours gone. If we start making some renewable hydrogen. Yeah. So like the projects are riskier, the cost of capital goes up and therefore like the cost of the technology goes up, right? It's, I just really do wonder like, and this is a bit of a tangent, so like I don't want to take us too far down this, but just like, and not just nuclear, but any of this firm stuff that's supposed to like, you know, it's like a, an animal that hunts and like scores a win every month and then gorges. Like, I just, I'm not sure if that's like a sustainable model for infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, you could have enough volatility where most of the time they're taking an operating loss because marginal cost is zero, but during scarcity events, which are frequent and very high priced, they do have good returns on like a year over year basis. But again, going back, like that's gas right now. Like <laughs> that's what gas does because it's basically dispatchable. Um, so in a in like a market environment, um, and again, this is assuming gas prices stay low, which we're not seeing right now, like with LNG, mm-hmm. like the gas market, I think $2 a, uh, M- like a MMBTU gas is probably gone. Like, which is crazy. That's like, like I think story. those days are gone. Cause we're just yeah. going to export now to more expensive markets abroad. But it, it's still like, if you just think, you know, going back to, let's say, let's just call nuclear 80 bucks a megawatt hour. If a gas peaker is at 60 or 80 and solar wind, solar and wind are, you know, on an LCOE, LCOE basis, like zero to four, a mix of solar, wind, and gas is still going to be cheaper than nuclear, like on average. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
even if you're overbuilding and like double building capacity, like it probably still nets out. Yeah. And, and of course the advantage of peaker has, right? Like you can build an open cycle turbine, you know, because you want to run it like at a 7% capacity factor, like you can build that very cheaply. Like it's, it's, or a lot of them just exist and will like keep maintaining forever. And it's like fire up the clunkers. It, it doesn't really matter. But, but insofar as like a future where we are presuming we're going to decarbonize. So like gas is out of the question other than maybe with CCS. Well, I guess if there's like a carbon tax, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like then, so, you yeah, know, you'd need nuclear or something. Yeah. Like, can you build stuff like that? Like it, I guess I'm almost getting into like the psychology of like project finance and like mm-hmm. investors. Like, I don't think people are going to do it. I just don't, I don't like it. batteries. I think are one thing. Cause like, they can capture a lot of arbitrage opportunities. Batteries are, will su- replace gas though. Yeah. Cause like they can charge, you know, when the price is zero, they could take advantage of the volatility. Whereas right. most firm clean options, you know, nuclear hydrogen, well, maybe not hydrogen, but depending on how you're doing it, but like these things have to try to survive in spite of the volatility. Whereas batteries, it's like they're built for volatility. Um. So anyway, I, we can leave this now, but like, whatever the solution is to the problem that nuclear is attempting to solve, whether it's geothermal, nuclear, or whatever, long duration energy storage, I'm kind of skeptical of it working in a energy market context. I just don't see people wanting to make those investments. It's, it's so risky and just, it it like breaks everybody's brain. I mean, maybe we'll evolve, but I'm going to just kind of drop this one now. I think it's a really hard thing to count on. Yeah. So I think, all right. So sort of switching, I guess, from the other side though, right. We have this like, okay, how will nuclear get built with these really cheap renewables? I do think it's worth, you know, having this question of like, if you have really cheap nuclear, why bother with variable generation? So let's just pretend that we solve the nuclear problem. Yeah. I buy that. And we're in the too cheap to meter world. Like, what's the value of renewable energy? Well, if it's actually truly really cheap, then yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because there might not be. Because I think that's what like the nuclear side has. But I think like for me, at least, like that's where we have to think about like how you're building a system and what nuclear can solve and what it can't solve. And like, just because I want everyone to get along all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I think there at least like DER has become super important, right? Because nuclear, you know, until we have like Asimov's future of like nuclear size, like, like belt sized nuclear, <laughs> we still have a resilience issue with yeah. nuclear, right? Like nuclear isn't like a, a hurricane still going to come through. You're still going to get disconnected from the grid. Yeah. And so I think that's like another area when trying to like bring the groups together, it's like nuclear could, even if like nuclear was the primary, you know, firm power, you're going to want things distributed across the grid. It's the most frustrating part of the whole conversation is that it's like firm capacity. It's not capacity. I'm like, none of this shit matters because you still get powder outages. Like it's all from... (laughs) This lens of highly centralized, like bulk power market uptime being the be all and end all and like running efficient markets. It's like, that's the future. 
which I just don't agree with. I don't think that's what consumers want anymore. I think when you introduce heat pumps and electric vehicles and like electrification and people need to rely on power every single day to do like critical tasks, like work from home, get internet, charge their computer, drive down the street. Like when you start start seeing power outages, like it's going to have, it's going to be 10 times worse in 10 years than it is today. And people already hate power outages. Like you used to be like, just bust out the candles and like, we're going to stick it out tonight. But it's (laughs) in the future. It's like grandma's dead because there's no future. There's no uh, heat. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, I agree. We're, we're both like more leveraged on, on power. Not to mention also the things that drive outages will increase too. So like it's, it's, it's a pretty gnarly situation, I think. Right. So what I, what I was like trying to start to get at and Colleen, like you really brought it home is like in talking about like demand side capacity, it's this understanding that like our relationship with power markets is going to change. Like we are going to get more used to demand response, just like how it's very present in um, Americans' minds, like when there's uh, like gas prices go up and like that's always uh, everyone throws a shit fit. And um, like it's that the president's and, fault. Yeah. <laughs> that but then they drive to, less, right? They like throw right. a fit, but then they actually respond. Right. And they like right. buy more efficient cars and stuff. And I'm not yeah. saying that's what we want to do. Like, obviously, at David Energy, we're working on like getting demand response without like getting customers to have to like ration yeah. power, um, like leading with a carrot, not a whip. But Colleen, like to your point, that obviously we're always coming from the perspective that resilience is the future. And reliability is also, you know, in the same way nuclear is dead, the big mega capacity projects, like reliability should be dead. It should be about resilience and like endpoint uptime, not bulk power uptime. And like whether you're a, a renewables maximalist or a nuclear maximalist, like you're all arguing over like having the right amount of bulk power capacity and like you're still not, you're still gonna have unreliable power in both instances. Because you have to transmit the power. Like, so to to answer your earlier question, like succinctly, Colleen, it's just that if you had really cheap, firm nuclear, like, yeah, I mean, why would we build like big renewables? Like, obviously, firm is better than not firm. But in that case, we'd still want solar, batteries, EVs, um, like, who knows? A bunch of this other stuff. Geothermal, a bunch of this other, other stuff because it's distributed. Yeah. Um, so one, I fully agree with that. Like we, re- resilience is a requisite like goal in the solution set now. Right. Has um, to be. And in fact, I think like in 10 or 15 years, the general public is probably going to care more about it than decarbonization, which is kind of scary, but I think it's likely, um, right. Like resilience is always the laggard mm-hmm. until people feel it. Right. And then they freak out. Um, and they so, go by diesel generators. Yeah, 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 um, which we're beginning to see. Colleen, like to your question, my sense of who are working on new nuclear, uh, who think they can get the price down, make this more, you know, make, make budgets predictable and timelines predictable and all this stuff. My sense is like the price they're targeting isn't less than renewables, right? Because renewables are just crazy cheap. It's like, 
you're basically like manufacturing energy. It's kind of wild. You just like make this machine and stick it there and ignore it while it makes power. Um, but my sense is they're trying to get it, get, get the price, you know, such that it is only so much more expensive than renewables that it still justifies its value. Right. Um, like I, I feel like that's where people are expecting it to wind up. Um, cause yeah, like you're, if it's actually cheaper than renewables, then like, that's, I mean, that's just like, until we lock unlock fusion. That, that's like a massive game changer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that sh- literally changes everything. Um, there will be just a race to build those until the whole thing's solved. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's more likely it's going to be like more expensive because it's more valuable. And like, does it, you know, is that ratio right for it to get deployed? I, I think that's kind of like where this would, would, would be headed. What can be more, uh, expensive than bulk power plants because it has transmission and distribution benefits can be built in an assembly line is firm and hyper power dense and likely is you know going to for all those factors achieve a, a pretty you know sub 120 150 dollar a megawatt hour price point wait and just to clarify is it this is a car- real thing is it low carbon or not yes it is zero low carbon. carbon. I'm gonna go with Oaklo, maybe. There we yeah, that's smart. Yeah, yeah I was like, let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the punchline. Um, but the thing, like, um, even if it's 200 bucks a megawatt or 150, it's like when you add up uh like when you think of net metering, like it's like 15, it's like 150 bucks a megawatt hour because there's T and D benefits. Yeah. So if you have SMR co-located to load, your price point can be higher than $80 a megawatt hour bulk nuclear. Yeah. Chase value. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I agree. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we talk about this? Like what we've, we've, we spent part one kind of like describing what we think are nuclear's flaws. Um, We spent part two kind of like wading into the debate of, do we need nuclear? How much you know, are very renewables, you know, sufficient, et cetera. Do we want to get in like where we think we could go, right? Like we want to see nuclear thrive. What does that look like? Let's do it. So James, what is an SMR? Small modular coal. I mean, reactor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically like a, a smaller reactor that, um, you know, you typically we envision like burying underground and has like self-sustaining, um, basically safety systems like a uh, convection cooling instead of like auxiliary powered cooling. It's like safer. Um, and it's typically what, what would it be like uh, definitely under 200 megawatts, but I'd even say like 20 megawatts is going to be probably the sweet spot. Could be wrong on that. But I think different companies are approaching different sizes, but yeah, yeah. I'd say from like the tens, Oklo's probably in the tens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, their, their initial ones, I think are really small. Like their first one's going to be like, like two um, megawatts. That's so dope. I love that. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. You could just stick that thing behind an industrial plant and like, you're good. It's, (laughs) It's pretty awesome. I know people may freak out about this, but I wonder if it's ever like, if you just think of, um, 
the transmission constraints in New York City, like SMRs are amazing. It's yeah. it's a question of like, do we really want to put this in the middle of 10 million people? Which I yeah, that's where you get like, but at least yeah. there's like a tech from but a technology I... perspective, you can see the, the potential. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Think Absolutely. about think about having firm, clean power in zone J. Oh, Ooh. my God. Yeah. The holy grail. <laughs> Make it like a cute little like bar inside the community center area. <laughs> <laughs> um, you could also do a my dream which is nuclear chp right where you use the waste yeah. heat and you pump it around but i'm not sure yeah. if anyone wants that but anyway so smrs right yeah we we yeah these smaller plants that have sort of quote passive safety um yeah everything from oaklo's working on their their first project soon which will be two megawatts i think but then you have like new scale which i think mm-hmm. each module is like 150 megawatts which is still small like relative to you know big stuff like they're kind of going for like, we want to be the combined cycle gas turbine replacement. Right. And in both of those cases, they're like trying to make standard manufacturing. Yeah. Standard regulation, like standard sort of ability to deal with regulation requirements. Easier to do with regulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like so that, applying for new plans. The key, the key unlock they're trying to do here is to make this a product, right? Like something right. you can mm-hmm. buy. It's manufactured to a spec. It's slightly better than the last time because you learn every time you build it, like the opposite of everything we described in part one. Um, and I think it's interesting to consider, right? Like it's not going to be as like serially manufactured as solar, right? Like solar is like every module is like the modular level. We call them a module, right? Every panel is like the modular level. But it, I think people are imagining it. It kind of looks like the way we do combined cycle gas turbines where it's like, GE has its like yeah, or like wind whatever. turbines too. Like yeah, the- yeah. Like we have our like, you know, with wind turbines, GE's at like what ten megawatts per turbine now. Um, or with gas turbines, they have their like hundred megawatt turbine. But like, it's it it has a product number. You order it, right? You pay like, you know, standard payment terms. Like it gets delivered, mostly assembled, and you just have to like hook it up to stuff and plumb it it's, it's a, it's a real product. And I don't know, I think it's super exciting. Um, I also think it's something the U S could be quite good at. Like, this is one of the types of things we're actually pretty good at building, um, that type of manufacturing. Um, so I'm really excited about it. I I think it could be awesome. Yeah. And I think it's like so smart about, you know, at least, um, what Oakla, the way Oakla is approaching it. And I don't know as much about new scale sort of market design but they're right their first location they're looking at is like a really remote location where they currently rely on you know shipping in diesel which is super expensive and so it's like how do they start competing against these prices because there is expected to be a learning rate prices are expected to come down over time and so if you can take advantage of like high cost areas and get that learning rate in then you can start again maybe not doing real competing with like solar and wind, but at least be more reasonably priced or maybe when a carbon market, you know, eventually comes in in whatever way that looks, um, they will be sort of like poised to, to be economic and competitive. Yeah. You, you target the high value markets first. Right. Market to start. Yeah. 
to, to get things moving, right? Like what was solar's first market? Like space, <laughs> like <laughs> modules, were, modules were 30 cents a watt. They were like $3,000 a watt. Like, <laughs> so, so yeah, with, with that as like context, I think Oklo saying like, we're Jimmy power Carter up. wasting all our tax dollars on the <laughs> white house You're system. Space. <laughs> that was solar thermal. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah. Um, so I, I think it's pretty reasonable. And you have a bunch of these companies and a question I find really interesting is, so you have the, the Oklos and the new scales, which are like new companies. You do have some traditional nuclear players kind of cooking up their SMRs as well. Um, and I don't know if they're like structurally built for that sort of thing. You know what I mean? The industry that builds mega projects, I'm not sure if it's the industry that builds products, but they probably have a lot of the sort of institutional capacity to like deal with regulators and all that stuff. So it'll be interesting to like, see that, that back and forth, um, you know, one side that's probably best equipped to innovate on product and another side that's like, you know, still, still, despite being shriveled compared to their, where they were once, you know, still, still like a force that can kind of get things done potentially. I'm down for nuclear in space. <laughs> there, is, there is some actually. Um, NASA, I forget what it's called. They have, it's a Stirling engine that's oh, yeah. pow- powered by like a radioactive isotope. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it's different, right? But it's pretty cool. Um, there's a name for it. You can Google it and like they have a whole website about it. It's pretty sweet. It, like they just like send it up to space and it can power a satellite for like 20 years uninterrupted. Um, that's dope. So what should we do? Like if SMRs are the, the answer to nuclear's problems and firm clean power is like pretty damn important as, you know, kind of like our portfolio approach to climate change, how do we like make it go faster, right? It's mm-hmm. like nuclear is a slow industry. Energy is a slow industry. Like how do we, how do we, how, how do we make this happen? Like, like what should we do with SMRs if, if we could sort of get everybody on board and say like, this is what we have to do. How do we, how do we get there? I hope kids watch uh, Isodope and think it's dope and study nuclear engineering. Like I didn't. Yeah. Cause I like- failed my duty to my country. <laughs> I dropped- <laughs> I'm just trying to get but think rich. Of making this software episode of- is, is gonna like spur so many more people. So you've done your, you've like, you've done. Your, <laughs> okay. Your yeah. Don't, Don't make worry. the same make- mistake as me kids <laughs> live a life full of regret and um, shame. But no, I think you, I mean, I think this is a case where like, you need, like you need federal funding to go into it. You need to like, really like get that moving. I think at the same time, like you need companies that are trying to do small modular reactors to just like go wild on those areas, like on those remote areas, like Alaska and Canada shouldn't have communities run on diesel that are, is like being shipped in. Like those should just all be nuclear. Just go do that. Yeah. Just go do it. yeah. <laughs> I don't really have much productive to add to the, like, you know, there's people working on this and I don't, I don't, I don't have like advice for them. I hope it happens, but I do you know, there's this weird sort of, um, not to get this too out there, but I think a big reason why, you know, PERPA happened and like this, even just like the liberalization of markets is we kind of take for granted that that's how things should be in this like fiat monetary system. <laughs> like 
the whole like we need we can't build a 50 year mega project because like our fiat currency is does push everything towards like shorter term time horizons because like money is getting you know gets less valuable over time and um like a you know a society where we where we consume instead of produce like we're structurally set up to do that so to your point earlier duncan on like these longer term projects um like how does that happen in markets well it's like it almost gets into our like our currency system and how it's set up like being you know more like i guess like Keynesian or like fiat instead of like austrian hard money stuff and i i say this because um there is this really interesting um, sort of dovetail between nuclear and Bitcoiners, and they're not wrong. Like, if you want to think about like resilient, reliable, build big projects that have fifty-year lifespans and like get back to building products that last like really long times, like like a really long time. There's a point there that I think we societally have. And economically, like neglected or or not put much value in for like you know since the early seventies when we got off the gold standard, and so I, I say this just just to like throw in there that um, you know structurally, I think when you move into an electrified economy, like moving away from the petrodollar system, which we've talked about in the past, like there's almost this I don't know I just find it very interesting that like that kind of philosophy of Bitcoiners and nuclear are like tied together. It's kind of this like hard money, hard asset, like, like firm, clean, like forget everything else. So I guess it's just to say that like, as you know, there's a lot of really crazy, like structural things happening in the economy right now, like post COVID. And there's a weird like macro shift happening that I think may create an environment that's better for people to think more local, more resilient, like, mm-hmm. like maybe, maybe there's some like tailwinds on SMRs there where, you know, solar is like the, the, the money system we have now is like very much in favor of building solar. Yeah. Yeah. Like quick, fast, cheap, like works fixed yeah. interest rates, like high CapEx, no OpEx, just sit on your money and your returns like for 20 years. Yeah. Which is not nuclear at all. yeah it actually i mean so oaklo's like oaklo recently announced their first private deal and it it was with a bitcoin company right i don't think a mine but like something related so maybe that connection is uh more uh more concrete than even you're suggesting but that's interesting okay so james's recommendation go buy bitcoin study nuclear (sighs) engineering and build projects yeah, but with that Bitcoin. have an open mind also. I, <laughs> I like it. Well, I'll tell you my view on what we should do to support SMRs. And I will admit I'm reusing this from our first attempt at recording, but I just thought it was too good. <gasps> Which is I think the 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 uh the government should just place a really big order. Yeah. I think like every military base should get an SMR. Right. Like we need to, we, we know how this works. We know how learning curves of like manufactured technologies work. And like the best thing you can do to get like further down the curve 
is buy a bunch of stuff really far in the beginning of the curve, right? We saw it with solar. We've seen it with batteries. It works. I think, you know, uh, military bases already all have their own power supplies. This is how the microgrid industry was born. I think we should just seed it. Just like, I don't know, every viable company should get an order. Like, (laughs) and we should just start cranking these things out. I, I think it's probably the like, you know, I'm not saying there's political will for this, but like if I were, but it's just I mean, way easier there... to build two megawatts than yeah, two megawatts. And there's also <laughs> yeah, just a yeah. lot of political will to spend money on the military. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's, yeah, good. Yeah. that's true. <laughs> it's yeah, an easy one to slip in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both. It's... No one notices a couple extra it's trillion not a bad going idea. to the military. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, it's yeah. not a bad idea. <laughs> oh, this isn't about climate or, or energy tech. This is yeah. It's just military. This spending. is about resilience, military resilience. I really do think like there there could be a job for the government to do here on accelerating the cost curve, though. And totally. Like, you know it. It you know the military. That's one idea. How maybe there are other ways too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I think that's. We re- if if we take this problem seriously, um, you know, placing some orders is the way to go. I like that, Colleen. Did did you have any other uh... any other create? No, I think I I mean I just want them all around remote areas. I don't know who's I don't know who's ordering it. That's the problem. Community <laughs> microgrids. That's that's it. Always comes back to that with you. It's good. Yeah. Can I end on one final irony? Do it. Sure. Just because I brought up the Bitcoin thing, Bitcoin is incentivized to find the cheapest power and they're all going to like solar and wind and stuff in Texas and gas. So like I said, the philosophically it makes sense, but like economically it doesn't. Yeah. Like Bitcoin miners aren't going to spend 150 bucks a megawatt hour. They want like 20 bucks a megawatt hour. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But if they're co-located at nuclear, couldn't they just like get a really cheap price? when the nuclear is not running because it's like out of the bid stack. Yeah, but you still need like uptime. The last thing I'll say is I always say, I think we're just like buying time as a civilization until we figure out fusion. Yeah. It's like, it's the only, like, otherwise we're just screwed. Like, I don't think we'll ever have, you know, we're always going to need more energy. So the point is every like surplus dollar that we have, like societally, we should always be putting in fusion research. There you go. Let's not forget that. Don't forget about fusion. Duncan, you're kind of like, ugh. I don't know. How your face looks right now. I mean, I don't think it's certainly not a climate solve, right? Like, unless you think we're going to like hit some breakthrough tomorrow and then begin the commercialization process. No, I just mean it could be over like fifty to hundred. But like years. long game, I, I can yeah, the see long that. game. Yeah, like I'm, I'm talking about like ten thousand. Like I'm going Voslav human here. growth. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually, like you know, everything else is so extractive. Like you need you need fusion, even if you solve the climate problem, right? Like we can't just be like doing lithium ion batteries for forever. All right, so we ended on we need SMRs, we need fusion long term. We need batteries, solar, wind, and just geothermal, hide it all anything in the else we can get the military to buy it. To buy. <laughs> the only thing we don't like is HVDC and <laughs> I wouldn't and, say that. I wouldn't say we don't like it. Big I'd nuclear say, that we're not bullish on. That's yeah, that we're yeah. bearish I just on. don't 
I don't. We're the DR task force. It makes sense. Yeah. If you guys don't want to say it, I'll say it. That's <laughs> I mean, a neat I think thing. We need, I think we need it. I just don't think it's, I just think that people. That it's not going to happen. People underestimate how difficult it's going to be. I, I think we need it and we will get some of it. I just think all, a lot of the, like all these models, like oversolve. not as much as we think. Yeah. They oversolve with it. Right. Like we're definitely going to get some when there's like, so what percentage of the amount that we think we're going to get and that we are going to get, I mean, I don't know. Like just, we're just making up numbers, but I think it's low. <laughs> like, okay. Like yeah. if like, if like, we're going to end up building nuclear instead of some HVDC. Oh, that's a hot take. Whoa. That's that's my take. I, I'm yeah. I mean, I think Mars it makes HGDC, Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna get some of both, and then also DERs are gonna eat some of both of those things too. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Long SMR, short, high voltage transmission, <laughs> and uh, light water reactor to giga plants. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely short light water. Definitely reactors. short. Yeah. Another great discussion from our task force leaders, Colleen, James, and Duncan. As always, please make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on our website, dertaskforce.com, and keep a lookout for our monthly meetups and other exciting things happening in the Dirt Tiff community. We have an ever-growing job board, our famous swag, and plenty more coming in 2022. 